Usually, I would say we're continuing in our sermon series, but this morning, we're a little bit rewinding. Tommy, by accident, covered a portion of what I was supposed to preach, um, but what we decided to do was have me cover it yet again, just so that we could be a little more thorough about it. He was only able to mention it briefly anyway, and there's a lot to talk about with Jesus' baptism, so a quick rewind here. Um, and if you would join me uh, in flipping open to Matthew chapter 3, that is, as you know, as you just heard, the passage that was just read. Um, also, if the TVs end up freaking out a little bit, would you just literally whistle at me that way? I had a professor who did this, and it worked really well. If the, like, the notes were off the projector, we would whistle, and he would readjust it, and we'd all be back to it. So I'm going to quote some passages that I want you to be able to read. And so if the TVs don't work, I'll turn to them here and give you a moment to let you turn to them in your Bibles, give you the page number and everything. I think that's all the clerical stuff. Um, but what we're looking at this morning is both Jesus' baptism and then Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And these are two famous um, moments of Jesus' life, and so I'm really excited to dig into them so we can look at them in context and really do a deep dive. Um, so I'm excited to do that. Portion one of chapter three, Jesus' baptism, what's going on there. Portion two of chapter four is Jesus' temptation. So without further ado, would you pray with me? Father, thank you that I get to preach your word today and that we get to learn about your word today, Lord. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you for how you have forgiven us. Thank you that we're going to see a lot of that unfold in the passages that are ours this morning. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for being tempted, Jesus, and withstanding would you show us what it looks like to withstand temptation, God? God, I thank you even for my wife who offered a lot of service to me this week to let me have room to prepare this message, God. Thank you that she has empowered me to be here, God, enabled me to be here. Thank you for all of these people who have encouraged me so much. God, thank you for the, the mutual encouragement we all have together, God. Thank you that we are your church. Thank you that your church gets to function with different body parts doing different things, God. I pray that now your whole church, myself and all of us included, would see you, Jesus, in these pages and understand more about you and be moved to love you even better than we already do. It's in your name we pray, amen. So let's look at verse 13 of chapter 3. It reads, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. As you probably know, this is John the Baptist that it's talking about. This was covered uh, just last Sunday by Tommy, but just by way of background, because this is going to be important for our passage, John the Baptist has identified himself as the guy who paves the way for God to come to his people. That's chapter 3, verse 3. He considers his baptism a baptism of repentance, verse 11. And when people get baptized by him in particular, they confess their sins. So that's the sense in which it's a baptism of repentance. We see that in verse 6. So in light of that background, it seems strange for us, for, for me, maybe for you, that Jesus would undergo a baptism of repentance. 
Jesus has no sins to repent of. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus does not need to repent. In fact, he can't repent. Jesus is God. Chapter 3, verse 3, quoting an Old Testament passage says, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, prepare the way of the Lord. This is the Lord. This guy is the Lord. This guy is God, right? In theology class this morning, we talked about the attributes of God, and I'll list three of them here. God is perfect, God is holy, and God is righteous. Those are attributes of God, characteristics of his nature. In other words, God is sinless, right? So Jesus is God, so Jesus is sinless. Why is Jesus undergoing a baptism of repentance when he is sinless? He has nothing to repent of. Well, actually, that's exactly what John asks in verse 14 in his own words. John would have prevented him. John would have prevented Jesus, that is, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John, the Baptist, he has sins to repent of, not Jesus. So John is saying, hey, look, Jesus, you're supposed to baptize me, not the other way around. But verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John has said, hey, this is backwards. And Jesus replies to him. He says, let it be so now. In other words, let it be so in this moment. Point being, this is not a permanent role reversal, but it needs to happen in this moment. It needs to happen now. For, the verse goes on, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Jesus does not explain how they are fulfilling all righteousness in this moment. He simply says that they are, and that's enough for John. Then he consented, it says. But the question for us does remain, how is this fitting to fulfill all righteousness? Well, there are a few ways. It says in particular that it is fitting for, quote, us to fulfill. Do you see that? Us, not me, not, not Jesus alone, but us. This refers to both Jesus and to John. They both have a role in this. John's role is he is, chapter 3, verse 3, he's the voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for him, right? That's John's role. Jesus, his role is to undergo a baptism of repentance. What is he doing there? He is identifying with sinners, Jesus is identifying with sinners. He is setting the stage for what he has came on earth to do. The Old Testament predicted this in Isaiah 53, 12. Speaking about the Messiah, it says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, identifying with sinners. That's what Jesus is doing. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 explains how he identified with sinners. Hebrews 2.14 reads, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is since we, the children of God, have human bodies, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on a human body so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The summary of that is, Jesus became a human in order to die so that he could free us from sin and death. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21, it wraps both of these concepts together from Isaiah 53 and Hebrews 2. For our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So God is not like us, right? He has the attributes of perfection, holiness, righteousness. We're not that way, right? But God, that is Jesus, became like us. In terms of our sin, Isaiah 53. In terms of our death, Hebrews 2, so that we could become like him in his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus' baptism is him setting the stage for his death. He identifies with sinners now undergoing a baptism of repentance. He identifies with sinners later by undergoing death on our behalf. And so that is at least a part of how all righteousness is being fulfilled. So it's us fulfilling, right? That's John ushering in Jesus, who's about to do something big, and now there's Jesus who begins to do it now. I want to note as an aside the difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism. The difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism. This came up this past midweek, and so I thought I would talk about it a little bit. The difference is this, the difference of preparation versus participation. Preparation versus participation. John's baptism prepared people for Jesus. John's whole ministry was preparatory. Verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 6, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins, but they're not professing explicit faith in Jesus. Do you see that? They're confessing their sin. They're preparing for Jesus, but they don't necessarily know who he is yet, certainly not by name. But then at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 28 in the Great Commission, that's where we see Christian baptism to begin. Jesus instructs us, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? That's Christian baptism. And its purpose is explained in Romans 6 in particular in verse 3. Do you not know, this is Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's a summary of that argument. In Christian baptism, we experience the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, we participate in it. We participate in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection when we undergo baptism. This explains why those who were initially baptized by John the Baptist needed to later on receive Christian baptism. Acts chapter 19, verse 3, reads this. And he, that's Paul, said to them, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. John's baptism was preparatory. Now that Jesus has come and has died, John's baptism is over. Christian baptism is now participatory. We get baptized in Jesus' name, and we participate in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. One thing that this definitely means for us is that if you're a Christian, 
You should be baptized. So if, you're, if you haven't been baptized, but you consider yourself a Christian, you should do that. You know, fact about Mercy House, so we require uh, baptism for membership at Mercy House because that's something God commands. We think all Christians should do it. But you know, the number one reason that people do not become members at Mercy House is because they don't want to get baptized. I often hear things like this, like, well, I'm already a Christian. I've been a Christian for a while. What's the point of baptism at this point? You know, I've been doing it for a while. Or, what will my family think? Or, I just want to wait for it to be a really meaningful experience. I want to wait on the right time. And those are legitimate things to think through if you're thinking them. But, at the end of the day, God commands us to be baptized. So, let's obey Him. Let's do that. I want to encourage you to be baptized if you have yet to do that. We do, but you're interested in baptism. We'd love to talk more with you about that. But for now, let's move on into verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The whole Trinity is here to say, He is God the Son. We are with Him. He's going to accomplish our work. He's going to do it on our behalf. This is the mission that we, the Trinity, have prophesied about in the Old Testament. And this is the mission that we are now carrying out. People, I've heard people say that you can't see the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's exclusively revealed in the New Testament. I want to push on that. I don't think that's correct. At first, in Genesis chapter 1, there is a, we see that there is a plurality in God at the very least, and there's more. But verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis reads this, Then God said after he created, uh, in created humanity, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God is self-identifying as plural, our. He's not talking about me and the angels. We're not creating the, in the image of angels, right? We're creating the image of God. It's in their image, our image, the Trinity's image. More explicitly, Isaiah, another Old Testament book, chapter 48, verse 11 reads this. My glory I will not give to another. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. That's God, right? That's pretty agreeable. Skip to verse 16. He's continued to talk for this paragraph, and now he says this, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. That's funny. Okay, I'm God. I don't give my glory to another, and God sent me. I'm God. God sent me and his spirit. That's all three of them right there. Now, the New Testament also explicitly supports that God is Trinity. I'll admit in more clarity. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, this is showing that the Father is God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So the Father is God, right? Hebrews 1, 8, about the Son. But of the Son, he, that's the Father, of the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the Father is calling the Son God. Jesus, the Son, is God. About the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So God is also the Holy Spirit. So, we believe in one God, the Father. 
and his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, who does not give his glory to another. Isaiah 48, right? The Father is not other than the Son. He's not other than the Holy Spirit. They share glory. I don't give my glory to another. They're not other than each other. They are identical in what they are. They are the same God. They are one God. That blows my mind too. That's mind-blowing. But that is who God says he is. That's who God reveals himself to be in our passage. So let's consciously worship him as such, as Trinity. If you're interested, by the way, in learning more about the Trinity, funny enough, next week, Sunday, 8 a.m., I'm teaching a theology class about the Trinity. I didn't even plan it that way. God planned it that way. So come through. There's a lot of gold to mine in that. I would love to have you at the 8 a.m. Sunday class next week. But for now, let's keep moving. It is significant that the Holy Spirit rests upon Jesus in this moment. Because in the Old Testament, people were often commissioned for their ministry by the Holy Spirit coming upon them. That's the case of David in 1 Samuel 16, the case of Ezekiel in chapter 2, several of the judges in chapters 3 and 6 of the book of Judges. But it's also true of the predicted Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, which reads this, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, exact language there, the Spirit of the wisdom, the Spirit, excuse me, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. The Spirit of God descended like a dove and came to rest on him, verse 16. That's what Isaiah 11:2 predicts. He's here. He's been commissioned. His ministry is about to begin. The Father identifies Jesus as his eternal divine Son. This is him. I'm pleased with him. So Jesus' identity has been declared. He is God himself, the promised Messiah, that is the promised Savior, who will save his people from sin and death. That is Jesus' baptism. That is how he fulfills all righteousness. So now let's look at Jesus' temptation in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 reads this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this is still another way that Jesus has lowered himself, right? So Jesus himself is God, as we have seen. The Holy Spirit is God. They're equal. Nobody needs to lead anybody here. Jesus and the Holy Spirit share authority. They have equal authority. But Jesus submits himself to the Holy Spirit here temporarily in order to live the life that we could never live as humans. You and I, we do not obey the Holy Spirit all the time, do we? No, we don't. But Jesus did obey the Holy Spirit perfectly for us. And now his obedience to the Holy Spirit is credited to us. Notice, the Holy Spirit has a particular purpose in leading Jesus to the wilderness. It's explicitly to be tempted by the devil. So it's purposeful that Jesus has been brought here. This is intentional on God's part. And we'll see more about that in a moment. Verse 2 reads this, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Talk about an understatement. One thing that I want to suggest that we do not do with this passage is to say something like this. Well, Jesus is God, so it really didn't hurt him that bad. God doesn't need food. I, I, I don't think so. Jesus, by becoming a human, experienced genuine human weaknesses. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reads this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yes, he is God. He didn't give up being God by becoming human. He was both truly God and truly human. But his divinity is not making this easier for him. As God, he is experiencing genuine human weakness. So darn right he's hungry. It's been 40 days. When the human body goes 40 days without food, if it hasn't died already, it loses functionality in the kidneys, the heart, the liver, and then soon thereafter leads to death. Jesus is literally starving to death in the wilderness. That's why in verse 11, he gets angelic medical attention. He needs help. Jesus is a very weak human right now. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So this, as we saw in verse 1, this is what the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness for. This has got to be miserable for him. He has not eaten for 40 days, okay, starving to death, that's problem one. And now he's in the presence of Satan. Man, when I'm hungry, I can't face my dishes when Jesus is hungry, he faces the devil himself. Jesus is a strong person. Notice what Satan is doing too. Satan is directly addressing the title that the father just declared of him. If you are the son of God, right? Satan knows Jesus is starving, so he offers Jesus an opportunity to exploit his prestigious title, son of God, for his own benefit. And look, Jesus can turn rocks into bread. He's the son of God. He's all powerful. Jesus is able to do it. And so Satan invites him. And honestly, Jesus needs food soon. Satan's appealing to a genuine need that Jesus has. He needs food. But look at how Jesus replies in verse 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus is literally starving to death, and he responds, I don't just live on food, Satan. Rather, I live upon what God says. That's what I truly live upon. Jesus puts his life-critical needs secondary, and he puts obedience to God's word as primary. A question for us. Do we believe this about what God says about his word? Do we believe this? Do we think spiritual nourishment is more important than food? Jesus does. Fasting is a great way to exercise our belief about this and even test our belief about this. Whenever I fast, I think about this verse. It, it reorients my mind to remember what's ultimately most important. My, my body literally needs food. So did Jesus's body. But this verse was true for him and it's true for me and it's true for you too. If you've never fasted before, I want to encourage you to try it. Pray over this specific passage in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, which is a quote of Deuteronomy 8.3. Even more then we need to stay physically alive, even more than we need physical nourishment. We need to stay spiritually alive. We need spiritual nourishment, and Jesus paves the way for us to understand that. It's worth asking why this is considered a temptation. 
I mean, it's fine to eat food, right? It's necessary to eat food, in fact. Why is Satan's invitation so wrong? Jesus needs food. Well, here, here's the reason. If Jesus accepts Satan's invitation, he will be provided for on Satan's terms, not on the Father's terms. Jesus knows he's being tested by Satan, and so he waits for God's timing on God's terms. In this encounter, Satan tempts Jesus three times. And each time, Jesus rebuts him, he answers him by quoting from Scripture, specifically quoting from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. And there's significance to why Jesus quotes from that particular portion of Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8, God is reflecting back on Israel's wilderness experiences, and in particular, reflecting on their failures to obey him in the wilderness. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8 is a reminder for the Israelites to not do those things that they had done previously. There is a parallel here between Israel and between Jesus. Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, and they failed the test. Jesus is now tested in the wilderness, verse 1, for 40 days, and he passes the test. The point is, in the same way that we cannot follow the Holy Spirit rightly, and Jesus obeys the Holy Spirit in our place, so Israel has failed at these commands in Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, but Jesus, in his wilderness experience, obeys in their place. Jesus obeys in their place. And the point for us is Jesus obeys in our place, because we could not do it. We failed. Uh, we've all sinned. None of us thinks that we've perfectly accomplished everything God has commanded. But Jesus did not. Jesus actually was perfect in everything God commanded. When Israel was in the wilderness, specifically in Numbers eleven six, they complained. Not because they didn't have food, but because they didn't like the food they had. It reads, there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. In Jesus' case, he doesn't even complain when he has no food. Talk about, I understand that I don't live on bread alone. They didn't understand that. If they understood it, they would not have complained. Jesus understood it, not just with manna, boring manna, with no food at all. Unlike Israel and unlike you and me, Jesus actually did not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5 continues with the second test of the devil. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in verse 5, we see the devil takes him, right? The devil took him to the holy city. Once again, this has got to be miserable for Jesus. He's starving to death, and then he's put in the hands of the devil. He is taken by him to this place. And Satan continues prodding at Jesus' title, Son of God. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. But this time, Satan does it actually by quoting Scripture. Satan, if you'll notice, quotes a passage of Scripture. He says, for it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 91. So his argument, Satan's argument is, hey, look, if you're the Son of God, and Psalm 91 uh, shows that God 
promises protection. I'm getting tripped off with the double P. Promises protection. God promises protection on you. That's what Psalm 91 is about, protection. Then you should prove it. You should prove it. You see what he does there? You should prove it. That's an application of Psalm 91. That's not Psalm 91 itself. That's a wrong application of it. You should prove it. Sometimes Satan tempts us by trying to get us to misapply Scripture itself. In this case, it's true that God promises protection for his people, but that does not mean that they'll never die, as Satan deceptively implies, and Satan knows that. Instead, rather than they'll never die, it means they will be protected through death, not protected from death. So Satan misapplies this scripture by saying that Jesus will never die. And in doing so, encourages Jesus to test the Father. But Jesus calls him out for it. Jesus says, you're using that passage wrong, Satan, in other words. You're using Psalm 91 to encourage me to test God. But scripture says not to test God. So your application is wrong. So this has implications for us. Let's, Mercy House, let's seek to know our Bibles well enough. That Satan cannot tempt us this way. Let's learn our Bibles so well that it doesn't work for him. So that we can say, hey, look, I know that this passage doesn't mean that because this passage says otherwise. So I'm sure that that's not a correct application. That's accessible to us. Let's have quiet times. Let's study our Bibles. Let's do Bible study. Let's learn God's word so that we can apply it rightly and so that Satan can't misapply it to us. When Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord God to your test, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. In particular, it's a reference to when Israel in Exodus tested the Lord, questioning, is the Lord really among us? Exodus 17, 7. Is the Lord really among us? And so they test the Lord because they're wondering, is he with us? Is he here? But Jesus, on the other hand, refused to test the Lord. He was confident that the Lord was with him. Jesus, again, obeys in the place of Israel, and he obeys in the place of you and me. Let's look at verse 8, the third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. At this point, Satan's motives become very obvious. Satan wants God the Son to worship him. That's obviously wrong, right? And that's why Jesus responds the way that he does. I'm only going to worship God. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13, which itself is a command in response to Israel when they made a golden calf in Exodus 32. God responds to that saying, you're not supposed to have other gods. Only me should you serve. Once again, where Israel could not obey properly, Jesus obeyed in their place, where you and I cannot obey properly. We have idols all the time in our hearts. How often do we give other things more credit or more attention than God? We worship idols too in our own way. Jesus has obeyed in our place too. 
Sometimes we ask, when Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, sometimes people will wonder, was this a genuine offer? Like, could he really have done this? My, my guess is that, no, this wasn't a genuine offer. John 8, says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, so I'm guessing he wasn't genuine. But whether Satan intended to give it to Jesus or not is really not the point. Let's notice everything that Satan can reasonably offer, one way or the other. Quote, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory this is only earthly authority that Satan can reasonably offer. Contrast that with what Jesus says at the end of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Satan's offering only earthly authority. Jesus already has both that and heavenly authority. And that's not something that Jesus like received after his death and resurrection. He had it in Matthew 11 as well beforehand where he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. Jesus has already had, in the moment that he's being confronted by Satan, Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. And Satan is offering him only earthly authority. He already has more than Satan's offering. This would be foolish for Jesus to exchange his authority over both heaven and earth for the lame return of just earth. Not to mention, Jesus is in perfect relationship with his father. I'm well pleased with him, the father says, right? But Satan wants Jesus not to worship his father. Satan wants Jesus to worship Satan himself. And in so doing, Satan wants to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son to break up that divine mutual pleasure between the Father and the Son. That precious, sacred relationship which they've enjoyed from eternity past. Satan invites Jesus to throw it all away. Satan's invite is infinitely not worth it. It's infinitely not worth it. And this exchange between Jesus and Satan highlights the foolishness of our own sin as well. When Satan invites us to sin, we are being invited to receive something worse than we already have. We have Jesus himself, don't we? If we're Christians, we have Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. But when we sin against him, we reject him and instead offer our friendship to Satan. That's a super bad trade. Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. Satan hates us so much that he tries to kill us. Don't get me wrong, there's forgiveness. That's why Jesus died in the first place, to forgive sin. So it's not like we sin and then suddenly we lose our relationship with Jesus. That's not how it works. But still, let's call sin what sin really is. We are exchanging pleasures with Jesus for whatever Satan has to offer. It's foolish. I do it. You do it. We all do it. But it's foolish. Thank you, Jesus, for having mercy on us. Jesus, help us not to sin against you, to love you. Amen. Let's look at verse 11, the final verse of our uh, sermon passage today. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So, We've seen Satan wanted Jesus to worship him. Not only does that not work out for him, but Satan actually ends up obeying Jesus. Shows you who's ultimately in charge here. Even Satan submits to God. And I mentioned this earlier, but now Jesus receives a sort of angelic medical care from fasting for 40 days. And now his test is over. 
Now, I th- it's not explicit, but I think it's fair to assume that the angels are giving him physical nourishment as part of their ministering to him. That being the case, I want to point out a reversal that's happened here. Earlier, Satan told Jesus to turn the stones into bread for food. Jesus refused and waited on God instead, but now he does receive heavenly food. Earlier, Satan said that if Jesus jumped, the angels would protect him, but Jesus refused. He refused to to test God that way, but now he's being cared for by the angels after all. Jesus ended up with the blessings that Satan offered anyhow and better versions of them. He's not just getting bread. He's getting angelic food, whatever that is. It's not just protection from falling off the temple. They are caring for him. They are ministering to him. By way of application for us, it is worth it, my friends, to endure temptation. We will be blessed by God if we endure. Sin may look good initially, all the kingdoms of the world. Wow, but it's worse. We have something better already. By the power of Jesus in us, let's endure and let's wait on God's timing, on God's terms. Let's not take it prematurely from the hand of Satan. Let's receive it in God's timing from the hands of God. This passage is relevant to both Christians and non-Christians. If you're a Christian and you struggle with temptation, I hope you are two things. I hope you are encouraged in your forgiveness, and I hope you are emboldened toward obedience. First point, encouraged in your forgiveness. If you sin, but if you love God, you'll be sad about that, right? So you're going to be sad and grieved over your sin. But if you sin, at the same time, I hope you're encouraged. No matter how much you sin, Jesus has endured temptation for you and has conquered temptation in your place. His accomplishment of enduring temptation is now yours. You're forgiven. His obedience belongs to you. So be encouraged no matter how much you sin. He's done it for you already. But also, I hope you're not just encouraged in forgiveness, but emboldened toward obedience. Jesus has paved the way for you and I to genuinely obey him. Now, there is a sense in which we will always struggle with sin in this life. That's true. We won't be perfect. James says we all stumble in many ways. But don't take away from the fact that we really can improve. Jesus actually defeated the devil here in Matthew 4. And he defeated him for you. 1 Peter 2.21, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is alive in you, Christian, empowering you to follow his example and endure temptation. So let's do it with him. Let's do it. If you're not a Christian, this is for you as well. I want to invite you to see how Jesus identifies with sinners. And he stands in their place to make them righteous. That is accessible to you. You just, tr- just need to trust him. If only you'll trust him, that is yours. By trusting him, that is yours. You will get to share in the loving relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. My beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, that can, that's yours. You can experience that relationship too. They, the persons of the Trinity, are inviting you to share in their friendship. Take them up on that today. These temptations will resurface before Jesus dies on the cross. 
In Matthew 16, 22 and 23, Peter learns that Jesus will die. And much like how Satan implied that Jesus was not to die, so Peter does here. Peter learns this and he says, far be it from you, Lord. He rebukes him. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's a repeat of the trial in the wilderness. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus was supposed to die, and Satan didn't want him to. And in chapter 27, verse 40, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and his critics say, you, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross, just like how Satan said, if you're the son of God, go test him. Prove it, prove it. The temptation resurfaces. But once again, Jesus is determined. He will not exploit his status as the Son of God for his own selfish purposes. Instead, he uses his status to serve us. God the Son came to earth in order to die. That's why we celebrate communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. That was his plan the whole time. Satan, in his trials, was trying to interfere with that plan. But Jesus came to die on that cross. And in so doing, to save us from sin and death. And we get to remember that by taking communion. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for identifying with us. Thank you for identifying with us sinners. God, we have sinned. It is rightly said that we are sinners It's not rightly said that you're a sinner, and yet you identify with us. Thank you for humbling yourself, coming here for us to become like us so that we can become like you to an extent, Lord. Thank you that your mission was determined. Thank you for enduring temptation for us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for not exploiting who you are, and instead using yourself as a means to help us and save us who needed it, literally needed it. We couldn't be here without you. We would be dead and in our sin if it weren't for you, but you have conquered sin and death. So thank you, and thank you for doing that through the cross specifically, God. It's in your name we pray, amen.